Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 7. If you are using a pew Bible, it is page 520. That is right in the middle of the Bible, Psalms. Go over to the right, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 7. Are you there? Say amen. And keep those amens coming as we hear His Word today. Amen? Amen. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing. For they do not know that they are doing evil, rather. Verse 2, do, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than, you should, than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your, your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. I want to preach to you this morning on these verses, and I'm going to title my sermon, Worship with the Fear of God. Worship with the Fear of God. Let's pray and ask God for His help. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now. Give us ears to hear your word. God, I pray that you would help me communicate your truths, not merely my ideas, that you would shape us and fashion us according to the likeness of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The British actor Michael Wilding was once asked if there are any traits which set an actor apart from regular human beings. Wilding responded, without a doubt, you can pick out actors by the glazed look that comes into their eyes when the conversation wanders away from themselves. Now, it's not my intention to pick on actors this morning, so if you're an actor, no offense. But I do want to talk about a different kind of actor. It's the kind of actor that Jesus talked about. It's the kind of person that Jesus called an actor. The word he used was the word hypocrite. Hypocrite is an old word in Jesus' day for an actor. As Jesus calls Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, Hypocrites, he's just simply saying, you're a bunch of actors. You're playing worship. You're playing love for God. You're acting. Now, the thing about hypocrites is the same thing about fools. And that is that they fool 
not only others, but they fool themselves. The reality is this, is that you could come to church every Sunday believing that you are coming to worship God and you're fooling yourself. You're coming with half-hearted worship. You're coming with half-love for God. You're not coming to hear the Word of God, to be moved by the Word of God, but rather you're merely coming out of religious motions. And you fool yourselves. Is it possible, I want to ask you this question as we start, is it possible that you are fooling yourself with all of the words and all of the motions, but an emptiness behind all of that. If I could rephrase Wilding's statement, you can pick out false worshipers by the glazed look that comes into their eyes when the conversation wanders away from themselves. Meaning when we're talking about ourselves, we are engaged and with it. And as soon as the conversation goes toward God, the things of God, we start to get a little sleepy. Glazed over. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in a sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we've been going through this, what we've discovered is that the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the author who calls himself the preacher, is on this journey to see if he can find any meaning in this life without God. And now in these verses, there's somewhat of a shift here. We're going away from these themes of pleasure and wealth. And we're talking about God, the vertical dimension of life. But what's interesting is that it's not as optimistic as you might have thought. Because as he goes into this conversation of God, it's almost as if he still continues his exploration of the horizontal. Meaning, is it possible that we can worship in the horizontal? Is it possible that we can have a kind of under-the-sun worship that doesn't really consider the God above the sun? Is it possible that we could worship without any real thought given to God? This is what I'll call today horizontal worship as opposed to vertical worship. Now what we know and what I believe the author's intent is in Ecclesiastes is to show us that there is more than just the horizontal. There is more than just the things that we can see and touch and feel on this earth. But there is a vertical dimension to life. And that is the reality of God. And he tells us here in this text, <laughs> excuse me, that God is in the heaven. And that we are on earth. It's that reality that should frame our worship. And so therefore, he says, let your words be few. He's saying, look, we are creaturely and God is transcendent. 
We are temporal and God is eternal. We are sinful and God is holy. We take up space. We occupy space. But God is omnipresent. We are limited in our knowledge, yet God is omniscient. He knows everything. And so therefore, what he says in verse 7, and this is the the remedy to the whole book of Ecclesiastes, and that is this. God is the one you must fear. This transcendent, holy, eternal God is the one we must fear. Now, when we think of the fear of God, it's not the kind of fear that you might have of the little monster that lives in your closet. You know, it's not the kind of fear that you had of what might be underneath your bed when you were growing up. It's not a horror movie kind of fear. The fear of God is actually to be understood as a reverence for God. Meaning we all fear something. We all give reverence to something. We all give worth and ascribe value to something. And as a matter of fact, our fear of God and our fear of anything is connected with our worship. You see, worship comes from the word worth-ship. It is to say that we give worth. We ascribe worth to something or to someone. And so to worship God is to say that God is the one who we ascribe all value to. He's the one we ascribe all worth. And that is connected then with our fear of God. So fear of God and worship go hand in hand. Now in verse 7, the fear of God is contrasted with our dreams and our many words. Look at verse 7. He says, for when dreams increase and words grow many, God, or he says there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. He's contrasting these two things. He's saying that as humans, we have a tendency to not revere God, but to revere our own dreams and our own words. We revere our words. We use many of them. We come with many words to God, and we come with many verbal commitments to God. We revere our actions. We go through the religious motions. We get up and we go to church. We might even do some Bible reading. We go through all of these different motions, but for us, it's nothing more than bartering with God. If I do this and if I go to church, then maybe you'll help me out. I often see this. Uh, uh, well, let me, let me use you as an example if you're in school. We just got to the end of the semester, right? Have you seen your prayers decrease since the semester's over? Have you seen your commitment to God decrease since the semester came to an end? Here's what, here's what we often do is, I'll use, I'm gonna pick on our students here. Here's what we often do is, as we're getting into finals, we're gonna be like, I'm dedicated to God, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna go to church, I'm gonna pray, I'm not gonna look at any pornography, I'm gonna like be super kind to everybody. And, and then as soon as you turn in that last final, it's like, <laughs> I can live. I can live it up. You see, what our problem is, is that even our religious actions and our obedience to God is actually just bartering with God. We're just going through the motions because we're self-righteous. And God is nothing more than a personal genie. 
for us. Is it possible that we could come to church week in and week out with little thought given to God? Just assuming that God is on our side. Assuming that we're just going through these motions. God is an important part of my life, you might say. Something I do. Yet our worship becomes man-centered. Our worship is half-hearted commitment to God. In our worship, we don't come to God in reverence. Is it possible that much of a modern-day American Christianity is a version of a vertical kind, or I'm sorry, of a horizontal kind of worship? When quote-unquote worship becomes nothing more than entertainment. When worship is nothing more than a, a, a great show with a couple good laughs. When worship is nothing more than a venue for casual self-help talks. We're not coming to worship then with listening ears to hear a word from God, but rather we're coming as consumers to be entertained. Let's see what they've got for me today. And that's because we have a tendency to be self-righteous. Now, since God is in the heavens and we are on earth, let us fear God in our worship. Well, how do we do that? What does it mean then to fear God in our worship? How can we be better worshipers of God? If anything that I said uh, just now, if it, if it hits you in some way or you saw yourself to some degree in any of that, hear the word of God today. It's for us. Those of us who are often focused on ourselves. It's for those of us who are often half-hearted in our worship. This is for us. So how do we fear God? That's what this text is about. How do we fear God in our worship? I'm going to give you three points today on how we can fear God in our worship. Number one, worship with a deliberate posture. Worship with a deliberate posture. Look at verse one. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps, meaning watch your approach. Take note of how you come to worship. The house of God here in the Old Testament would have been a reference for the temple. At the temple was the presence of God. It was the experiential presence of God. And he's saying here then, go to the temple. When you go to the temple, don't go in some kind of trite way. Don't be commonplace about how you approach your worship at the temple. Now, in the New Testament, we don't have a temple, do we? Or do we? What is the temple in the New Testament? Well, it's the person of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's the body of Christ. You see, we're told in the New Testament that we don't worship in, or that the, the, the building itself is not a temple. This church building, 1500 Druid Hill Avenue, is not a temple. But I'm looking at the building blocks for the temple. 
You see, in the New Testament, the people, the redeemed people of God, are the beautiful building blocks for the temple. And Jesus says that when they gather together in my name, I am present. So don't just simply write all this off because we're in the New Testament, uh, or uh, we're New Testament believers as opposed to Old Testament believers. This is very applicable for how we come to church, to gather together, to approach the presence of God in our worship. And what he's saying is, is don't be trite about it. This is not commonplace. This is for, as one person put it, he says it's for, this text is for the well-meaning person who likes to sing and turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear and never quite, getting, never quite gets around to do what he has volunteered to do for God. Meaning, when you approach the worship of God, be deliberate about it. Be serious about your approach. Now, by deliberate and by serious, I don't mean somber. We're not coming to a funeral. As a matter of fact, guarding our steps with how we approach worship does not mean that we check our joy at the door. The Bible tells us how to approach the worship of God, and he says, come with, come with tambourines. Come with stringed instruments. Do you know how often throughout the Psalms we see shouts of joy in the presence of God? Shouts of joy? Do you come to worship with shouts of joy? And, and somebody says, well, you know, I would shout for joy, but nobody else does, and so then they're going to think I'm weird. The Bible says come with shouts of joy. I don't care if nobody else shouts for joy. If you want to shout for joy in your worship, what ought you to do? You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. We often lack joy in our worship because we have not guarded our steps in our approach. We have not been deliberate about it. We have not been serious about it. We came chill together for worship. And so therefore, our worship is chill. You see? This is very practical for us. Guard your steps in how you come together. Come deliberately. Come serious. This is, this is serious. What are some tips? How can we do this? Well, think about Saturdays. How can you use Saturdays to prepare for Sunday? I love Kevin DeYoung's quote. He says, the most important thing you can do on Saturday is to prepare for Sunday. Oh, so often we're just so busy on Saturdays uh, uh, man, the party was great last night, by the way. Christmas party. We're out partying on Saturday nights. <laughs> no, we partied like Christians last night. We're so busy on Saturdays. We're not preparing. We're sleeping in on Sundays. We're just rushing to church. We've got no clue what we're doing. We're just in a, in, we're, 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 we're not prepared. So DeYoung says the, the best thing you can think about on Saturdays is how to prepare for Sunday. And that's very practical, especially if you have kids, families. Like, let's prepare. Let's prepare our kids. Let's think ahead so that we can engage with the body in a very mean, meaningful and serious and deliberate way, filled with joy. But we can also prepare through reading the Scriptures, one friend of mine, he encouraged his church to sample the scriptures before 
uh, before church, and he, he likened the sampling to going to Sam's Club. And, you know, if you go to Sam's Club, why is it that you end up putting, I don't know, pizza rolls into your cart? It's because you got a sample of it. You were not planning to get pizza rolls, were you? But they gave you a sample, and, and, and as soon as you took that sample, like, all you could think about was putting some pizza rolls into your cart. How can we prepare our heart to crave the word of God? My friend says, sample it. Sample it. Meaning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, be in the word. If you know what text is going to be preached on, read the text ahead of time. Read other elements of the Bible. Read other sections of the Bible, rather. Listen to songs. Listen to worship songs filled with gospel-centered truths to, to prepare yourself to, to have a craving for the word of God so that when we gather for worship, you see the deliberate nature that we can come with? You see the seriousness in which we can approach church? And think about it. How differently would our gatherings be if every single one of us prepared? We guarded our steps as we gathered, as we drew near to God in the gathered presence of Jesus Christ. Your experience in the presence of Christ among his people is determined by how you approach worship. Why is it that we are so often checked out? Why is it that the NFL app on our phone is begging for our attention all through the service? Why is it that we have so much trouble just staying engaged? Let me ask you, how do you approach worship? What's your approach? What do, you, what do your steps look like? You see, when much of our worship is silly and trite and entertainment, we have to recognize we are not approaching a vertical kind of worship, but rather it's merely a horizontal worship. So, be deliberate, number one. Number two, worship with a listening posture, a deliberate posture and worship with a listening posture. Look at verse 1 as he continues. He says, to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in the heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. I had a friend once who didn't say much. He just kind of like nods. Like he would call me up and he'd be like, Joel. And I'm like, hey, how you doing? And it was just nothing. And then eventually he'd say, good. And then pretty soon I'm leading the conversation. And I don't even know why he called. And I start sounding like an idiot. I, I just, I'm going on and on. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with this. And I'm filling the space with all of my words. And every time I talked to him, I walked away feeling like a fool. <laughs> because fools come with a lot of words. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the more we talk, the more we, we have to regret 
when we come to God, he's saying, don't just spill out all of your words. Don't come to God with, with many words. Why? Verse 3 continues and explains. He says, for a dream comes with much business, or I think he also could mean here busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. A dream here would represent our imaginations of great things that we are going to do for God that have no reality behind them. Like a regular dream. Like I dreamed last night that I won't say who because they may or may not be part of this church. This person became a Nazi and shot Eden. And I'm like, why did you do that? And they were like, they didn't think it was a big deal because they're a Nazi now. Yeah. And I woke up feeling so angry toward this person. I texted him. I was like, why did you, first of all, become a Nazi? And secondly, you shot Eden. And you didn't think anything of it. But here's the thing about dreams. It wasn't real. Like, the person is not a Nazi. And Eden doesn't have a bullet in her shoulder like she did in my dream. It wasn't real. That's our problem with, with coming to God in our worship with our dreams. We're coming with all of these ideas, all of these vows, all of these promises, all of these commitments, but there's nothing substantial in them. They're not real. There's nothing there. One theologian calls it verbal doodling meaning with many words, the fool talks. And with many words, they're just doodling pictures of all of the great things that they're going to do for God, but there's nothing there. It's just doodling on a paper to be thrown away. Meaning, we could come into our worship with a sense of, I want to impress with my commitments to God. I want to impress by being the busy one. You know, Martha was the busy one in the kitchen. And there is certainly a time to serve. I'm, I, I believe I'm serving right now as I'm preaching. There's a time for us to serve. But Jesus says to Martha, Mary has chosen the better. Because there's a time that we must listen. There's a, must, there's a time where we must walk away from our service and just sit and be with Jesus. I remember there was a servant in this church once some years ago, and that person had a well-meaning heart, and they were kind of like a Martha. They could never sit through a whole service without doing something and getting up and then writing down plans and programs for the church, serving, 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 ideas, ideas, ideas. And Jesus says to us, chill. Sometimes we just need to sit with Jesus. We come to listen. The fool, however, comes to worship with all of their verbal commitments and their ideas and their words, not sitting and listening. Why? Well, it's hard to sit and listen, if we're honest. We would actually rather be the talker. We're like Oscar Wilde who said, come over here and sit next to me. I'm dying to tell you about myself. Have you ever had that talky-talky friend who just talks about themselves constantly, never asks you a question about yourself, never wants to actually listen to what you have to say. Saints, we are often like this before God. 
We want to talk about ourselves. We want to talk about others. We want to focus on our own ego. We want to spew our empty words to God. The remedy is to let our words be few. He doesn't say silence is the remedy. There is a time to talk. God wants us to be honest. He wants us to be vulnerable with our words. But He doesn't want us to spew empty words with empty commitments just to impress Psalm chapter 40, verse 6, we're told that God does not delight in sacrifice and offering, but rather He opens our ears to listen. Literally, that means you dig holes in my head so that I might hear. I'm looking at all of you, and as far as I can tell, it looks like you all have two holes in your head, dug there by God for the purpose of ultimately of listening to God. Since God is a speaking God, what good is His voice if we don't listen to Him, to what He has to say to us? Now, how do we do this? How do we fear God in our worship? Well, our approach is with a listening posture. That's how we approach worship. Meaning, as we gather, even in a church service, we're singing songs that the church chose, and we're hearing them and listening to these truths. We're praying the Word of God and hearing God's Word prayed. We're, we're uh, hearing the Word of God expounded. This is God's Word to us. And, and when we explain the Word of God, God is actually speaking to us. That's how He speaks, is through His Word. And this applies even to your own personal private time of worship with God. We come to God to hear His Word. You see, so often we just want to talk. We want to be like Oscar Wilde. Let me just tell God all of my thoughts and all of my ideas. But rather, we ought to hear His Word and then let His Word inform our prayers. This is why at the Garden Church we often teach and model praying through the Psalms. What we're doing as we pray through the Psalms is we're hearing God's Word and then we're allowing God's Word to frame our words and what we say and what we pray to God. You see, Jesus is the Word. He is the Word of God who became flesh. And our words and our actions cease as the Word speaks and acts. So question, do you come to worship to hear from God? Do you approach worship expectantly, believing that today God has a word for you? Do you come to worship anticipating God to speak to you through His word? You need to hear the word of God. His word is life. His word is good news for the sinner. And what a word it is. Praise God for His word. So we come to listen. Thirdly, we worship with a humble posture. Worship with a deliberate posture. Worship with a listening posture. And worship with a humble posture. 
The preacher next moves on to the topic of vows. Now, vows were not directed by God. God never told his people to make vows. It was something that Old Testament saints did as part of their worship. The Old Testament law regulated vows, meaning it addresses vows, but it wasn't part of God's prescription for worship. But we see it throughout the whole Old Testament. For example, Israel prays, God, if you will get us into the land, then we vow If you do that, we will destroy all of the cities of the enemies. Or, if you give me a son, Hannah prayed, I will then dedicate him to the service of the temple. Those are vows that were made in the Old Testament. But there's a danger here. There's a danger when we promise something to God. Look at verse 4. He says, when you vow a vow to God, Do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Remember, fools deceive themselves in their worship. Fools believe and act like they're worshiping God, and they're using many words, and they're throwing out things, and they're saying, God, I promise to do this, I promise to do that, but there's no follow-through. There's nothing there. It's all a dream. So instead, he says, pay what you vow. If you promise to do something for God, then do it. Verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Meaning simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And it's better to, to, to just keep your mouth closed and to not promise God anything than to promise God only as someone bartering to sweeten the deal with God so that they'll get from God what they want from God. He says it's better to just say nothing than to, than to barter with God and make promises and not pay. Verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Meaning, empty commitments to God. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You see, the irreverent worshiper is flippant with God. They'll make big statements and the priest would record their vows and they would never turn up. They would never fulfill their vow. And they would go to the priest or the messenger and they would say, oh, it was just a mistake. I shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have said that. I can't actually, can't actually complete that. I'm sorry about that. The irreverent worshiper is prideful in their vows. Meaning, not only are they flippant and saying things that they, they'll never follow through with, but the irreverent worshiper is a person with pride. Meaning, they are making a public declaration. That's what a vow was in the Old Testament. It was very public. And so these people would come in and they would say, oh, let me make a great public vow to God. And when I do that, everybody goes, oh, Wow. What a, what a wonderful, wonderful individual this is. They're prideful. Jesus addresses this with the Pharisees. He tells the Pharisees what their issue is. In Matthew chapter 23, he says that they do all of their deeds to be seen by others. 
Meaning they're coming to worship and they're making vows and, and presenting these dreams and they're saying all of these things and they're even doing good deeds and they're serving in various ways, but they're doing it to be seen by others. Why? John chapter 12, verse 43 tells us. He says, for they loved the glory that comes from man, not the glory that comes from God. You see, the core issue with our horizontal worship is that there is no vertical dimension. It's all about us. It's all about what other people think about us. It's all about what we can be seen doing, saints. It's about us getting the accolades or even getting from God, the vertical, what we want on the horizontal. Going through the motions with no heart behind it. Sitting through yet another service, just watching the time so I can get home and get some food. Man-centeredness in our worship. Seeking entertainment in our worship. Coming to church very casually with no sense of gravitas. No sense of weightiness before the presence of God. No preparation of our heart. And at the core what our issue is, is self-righteousness. That we don't really need a Savior. Why do we see in so many uh, 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 sermons sort of the gospel message only as an afterthought at the end of an otherwise self-help message? Let me tell you how to be great. Let me tell you how to be a wonderful person. Let me tell you how to be the best, the best version of yourself that you can be. And then at the very end, oh, just in case you're not a Christian, pray this prayer, got it in. Why is that? It's because salvation is just an afterthought. Because the fool assumes that they're okay with God. And their real need is not that they need a Savior, but their real problem with themselves is that they're just not simply the best version of themselves that they should be. And so what they need is moralism. They need a to-do list. They need some action items. When they worship God, it isn't about God. But when they worship God, it's about themselves. It's about their own greatness before God. This is why they can be quite happy with worship as entertainment. Silly. Irreverent. This is why they can be quite happy with self-help messages, which merely inspire. This is why they're happy with just simply going through the motions of church, much in the same way that we might go to the dentist on occasion for a cleaning. But really, day to day, I take care of it myself. This is why they can be so happy with moralism. And here's the thing. And this is where we, I'm, I'm talking about they instead of us. But here's the thing. They can be very sincere. Which means it could also be us. Because we really think we're sincere. We really think that we are sincere in our worship. But he says in verse 1 that they're ignorant. They do not know that they are doing evil. 
And so this church is why I say, let's come with a humble posture to church. Not a us looking down on whoever they are, but recognizing our own tendencies in our worship. In Luke chapter 18, the horizontal worship versus the vertical worship is clearly put on display. There are two men in Luke chapter 18. There's a tax collector and there's a Pharisee, a religious leader. They both draw near to God. They both come to the temple. They both pray to God. They both are sincere in their prayers. Yet one is justified. You see, the Pharisee comes. He's the religious leader of the day. And, and he, he stands at the center of the temple and, and he prays to God and he says, God, thank you for not making me like other people. Thank you for not making me like the robbers. Thank you for not making me like evildoers. Thank you for not making me like an adulterer. Thank you for not making me like them. Oh, and then he sees this tax collector over here praying. He says, God, thank you for not making me like this tax collector. And then he goes on to say what he does for God. Thank you for not making me like them because I am the kind of person who gives 10% of all that I make. I am the kind of person who fasts twice a day. Over in the corner, the tax collector who would have been the despised of society. The sinner. Over in the corner, he doesn't even stand in the center. He's, he's quiet in his approach. It says he stands at a distance. And he doesn't even look up to God. In his humility, he looks downward. And he beat his breast and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves before God will be exalted. True worship is to come to this holy God through the one mediator of Jesus Christ. Delighting in the glory of God as displayed on Calvary. The greatest display of God's glory in the suffering of our Savior. Praise God that God is a merciful God. Praise God that He comes to us and saves us not because of our vows to Him, God doesn't save us because of our promises that we make to Him. But rather, God is a promise-keeping God. Consider this. This transcendent, holy God who we have trifled with, who we have treated as our personal genie, 
this God who we have ignored, this God who we have not heard, this God who we have used only as a tool to achieve the glory of man, this God in the heavens came down to earth. He promised us a son, and to us a son is born. He promised us a Redeemer. And you shall call His name Jesus, for He saves His people from their sins. He promised us His presence. And He was called Emmanuel, God with us. He promised forgiveness. And the greatest vow, the greatest promise ever was kept on a hill far away where stood an old rugged cross. The guilt of our foolish words. The sins our mouths have led us to commit. The empty sacrifices and vows which we have made. Our trite worship. And yet He came to earth not to punish us, but to die for us. Saints, Christ has made us new. We worship God because we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Oh, as the, the Christmas carol goes, Hark the Herald, angels sing, it says, Adam's likeness now effaced, but stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Christ came to earth to reinstate us as a new humanity before God. Not only then did Jesus come and approach the temple rightly, not only did Jesus approach his worship rightly, but Jesus came into the temple and he opened up to Isaiah and he read the gospel and he said, today it is fulfilled in your presence. Jesus is the temple of God. And the greatest glory we see is the glory of our Redeemer dying for the sins of our world. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth you see how do we fear god in our worship how do we rightly approach god well hebrews 4 tells us with all that we know of jesus christ it says this let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace oh if you're like that tax collector you are the broken you are the one crying out lord have mercy on me that is how we approach god as one who is a needy sinner coming to an all-sufficient Savior. Amen. Let me close with the story of one man who was a fool his whole life. He was called a thief. He was called a robber. Likely, according to the scholars, that word can also be translated murderer. He was a bad man. And in his Death, he was unwittingly nailed next to Jesus. Now consider the other characters in this story. There were the religious leaders who were so sincere in their protection of their religion. 
yet they were ignorant in their superficial approach to God. They were unable to see their need for a Savior because of their self-righteousness. And so they nailed Jesus to the tree. Consider this thief's co-conspirator. He was indignant before God. He had no fear of God as he curses and mocks the Lord Jesus Christ who is hanging on the tree. Yet the thief, he is hanging there with no sacrifice of his own. His hands are nailed into the wood. He can do absolutely nothing for God. He has no good that he can offer God. He has no vow that he can make God. He has no sacrifice that he can bring God. He's not even able to get off the tree and get baptized. Yet a fool, even as a fool we see here in the fool we see here in Ecclesiastes 5, a fool is not in essence a fool. A fool is a fool because of what they do. Meaning, a fool need no longer stay a fool. Oh, this thief was nailed to the cross as a fool, and before he died, he became a saint. How did this happen? How can someone who has nothing to offer God become a saint? No vow, no promise, no morals, no change that he's able to live out. What does he bring onto that cross? Answer, nothing but ears to hear and believe when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, saints, we approach the throne of God ready to hear the Word of God and to receive it. Praise God for the fact that God made a way for us to enter into His presence with confidence. Do you hear His voice today? Do you cling to His promise today? Do you know that Christ is sufficient for the salvation of your soul? Hear His Word. In Jesus Christ, you will be with Him in paradise. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You for the fact that in Christ, we have confidence that we are no longer a fool, but turned into a saint by His grace. God, I pray that we will enter into our times of worship with this kind of deliberate seriousness. Not the somberness of a funeral, but the joy of a celebration. For His grace is enough. God, let us then live our lives as a sacrifice of praise for all that You have done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.